0: This episode brings you the fun conversation between my mentor, Dr. Darren Grunwald, and myself. He wanted to be a Renaissance man, which led him to becoming a physician able to do everything. His MD suggested that he research both DO and MD, but the DO philosophy really resonated with him, which then OMT grew to be his future in both his practice and continued teaching to also improving the health of patients, even if there was no complaints of pain. My apologies for the recording glitches, but I hope you still enjoy this episode. And before we go to that, here is an interview from a med student on their view of OMT. I'm Jordan Little. I'm from Des Moines University. I'm an undergraduate fellow and going into my fourth year of med school. And I think OMT is a tool that I get to use that helps me listen to my patients in a way that sometimes they may never be listened to. And I believe that that is one of the greatest gifts that I can give my patients, is just being able to listen to them. Welcome back for another osteopathic manipulative medicine episode. I am Dr. Amanda Robinson. Today, our guest is one of my mentors and an extremely valued experience during my fourth year rotation, Dr. Darren Grunwald. He works at the Mercy Health Physician Partners in Muskegon, Michigan as an o specialist. He sees patients for ambulatory and inpatient consultations, as well as offering didactics for each of the residents. Dr. Grunwald graduated from MSU-COM in 2005. After completing an undergraduate fellowship in osteopathic medicine, he completed his FM-NMM integrated residency at what was then called the Metropolitan Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 2009. Dr. Grumwald walked worked briefly for the Mount Clemens Regional Medical Center as an NMM-ONMM specialist and as an assist, associate professor for msu Comm's satellite campus at Mount Clemens Community College prior to rejoining Metro in 2010 where he became its program director in 2014 and transitioning the program to the ACGME ONMM format. He started his practice at Mercy in autumn of 2021. He has been active with the American Academy of Osteopathy on the postgraduate training committee and facilitating didactics at their annual convocation. He also has been active in Michigan's statewide campus system, facilitating didactics and educational material for residents for most of his medical career. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Dr. Grunwald.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Have you been on a podcast before?
1: No, no. First time caller, long time listener.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into the main topic, kind of what your hobbies are?
1: Sure, um, yeah, I, I, it, it's probably it's probably time. It's been enough years that I should come out of the closet. I am a uh, a, a person who usually uh, would tell people that I couldn't go to something because I had poker night, but poker night is usually uh, a a time to get with my friends to play Dungeons and Dragons or various things like that. Uh, so that is kind of one of my main hobbies that I rediscovered after finally uh, uh getting through the uh, uh, whole student years and residency years and then uh uh other than that um spending time reading or at least listening to books on long commutes and hanging out with my family
0: nice so with Dungeons and dragons do you do the, like the whole dress-up thing
1: <laughs> uh nope nope although i, I uh, uh other than other than t-shirts that have uh, uh various puns on them no okay <laughs> Just wondering, <laughs> uh,
0: do you have any books that you would recommend for our listeners?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of, it, it's, it's unfair. I've been listening to the other podcasts and I, I found out that every time I came up with a good idea, one of your other people have already said it. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that, uh, I was sort of, um, I have a long history of enjoying a, a series, uh, known as the wheel of time. Um, It was actually uh, almost required dating material for my wife at the time that we met, and then uh, we would read those books together uh, prior to ever me going into med school. And then uh, I remember a very sad night on internship at around 3 a.m. when I went to admit uh, an OB patient. And the OB doctor was sitting at the counter reading one of the, you know, like book 10 of the Wheel of Time series. And I just remember suddenly being crestfallen saying, oh, you still like reading. Mm. Uh, so so that was a series that I still enjoyed. And then the, the newer version of kind of uh, uh, the replacement to that for this generation would be uh, Stormlight Archives, uh, the, the Way of Kings or something, which I think one of your previous uh, podcasts already mentioned. Uh, and that's all nice for sort of an escapism, epic fantasy kind of thought processes. Uh, the, uh, uh, the more thoughtful book, more documentaryist book would be, uh, again, some I already took, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, for a couple other ones. I, I would uh, say the ones I listened to were uh, Outliers and The Tipping Point, which I thought were very useful uh, and, and, and good things for thinking about um, uh, improving one's practice and uh, how to get where they want to be in in this world.
0: What specifically about improving the practice did it go over?
1: Well, one of the things uh, that he uh, uh, mentions is kind of this rule about, um, one, when you become really good at something, a lot of times it's it's through some sort of accidents of being in the right place at the right time, Uh, but some of the things that also get you there are things like having, say, you know, ten thousand practice hours of something or or doing something ten thousand times and and that's when you finally kind of become the master of something. So having that concept being uh, uh, rather than say, well, I have officially graduated, therefore I have attained a certain time in some. Predescribed uh, pathway where I'm supposed to be good and on my own and, and able to be cocky and stuff about it. Well, it doesn't matter if you haven't actually been there in the moment, mindfully doing these encounters and have racked up enough of them that you are really actually good at what you're doing. Um, uh, uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, martial arts. Somebody could say they've been studying for 20 years, but if they've been studying kind of half-mindedly for 20 years and somebody else has been delving into it and really getting into it, they've probably put in closer to those 10,000 encounters than somebody else who had spent 20 years doing it.
0: Uh, okay. So, so like the experience is almost the mastery instead of just the educational component of it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I follow. Actually, actually putting in a... Uh, 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 persistent effort is going to to get you places you don't have to be it's not always about being naturally talented Um, uh, although the reward of feeling that initial if you have a little bit of talent you get a little bit reward up front so that helps drive you towards practicing more but i think the practice is what's going to get you there more than the whatever you might have been born with
0: All right. So for you, what brought you to a D.O. school?
1: Um, Let's see. Uh, Somewhere back in earlier grade school, uh, in my English classes, uh, we got to the section in in the books where we were learning about Renaissance people. And I kind of liked the whole concept. And I didn't know where I want to be when I grow up, but I I thought maybe I should try to become a Renaissance guy. And, uh, I remember reading in the little biographies, uh, in, in all those anthologies of, uh, the poets and the, and the, and the authors, and they, they, it seemed like almost every other Renaissance person was a doctor as well as all the other things. So I thought, oh, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. If I want to become a Renaissance man, maybe I should become a doctor. Um, I was, or, or have been close to terminally indecisive most of my life. And so Uh, after high school, I went straight into undergrad, but I had like a, as wide a range of, uh, uh, classes as I could get. I think I was undecided and finally got some combination double major of, uh, psychology and humanities with a concentration in theater and philosophy. And then, uh, didn't know what I was going to do with that. And I wandered in the desert for six years and then remembered, Hey, I'm, you know, in order to do this, I'm supposed to become a doctor. So I started looking into it and there was a, uh. Uh, I was working at a psych hospital at the time, and there were some uh, psychiatrists there who I I asked them their opinions because I had heard a little bit about these uh, different kinds of doctors. I believe my own family practice doctor suggested he was an MD, but he suggested uh, that there was this existence of these DOs. And I, when I asked the psychiatrist about them, I remember one of the docs said, why limit your options? And that was pretty much the end of his answer. And he went on and he seemed like he was almost angry at me for even asking about them which made me curious and wanna ask more. And when I started learning a little bit about online, what their philosophy was, although online wasn't really online back then. I think it was looking things up on a thing called Metacrawler well before Google. (laughs) Um, And uh, there was just this philosophy there that sort of made it seem like uh, uh, they would be probably the closest thing to uh, legal American shamans kind of like the the village wise person. Um, and I really liked that idea. If I was going to go into medicine of having something that had a philosophy that kind of looked good and appealing and that I would feel like I could fit into. Uh, so I applied, uh, I think uh, let's see at the time I was in North Carolina with my wife to be, when we were going to get married, all of our family was back in Michigan. So we were deciding that we were going to move back, and get married, and I would apply to med school all at the same time and just hope that it all worked out. So I applied to MSU. Um, I think my second thought was I might expand over to Chicago, but I really didn't want to have to move right after I was in the process of moving. So I just applied to MSU and figured if it didn't work, I could always retry it again the following year. But it worked, and there I was.
0: Awesome. So, So why a renaissance man? (laughs)
1: you know i I think it went along with uh the the close to terminal indecisiveness it Mm. seems like they they dabbled in a little bit of everything um they experimented they were poets they used both sides of their brain all the time they were philosophers they kind of i don't know there was a sort of a uh this sort of epic romantic quality uh when i was reading about them that i thought would be really cool okay yeah
0: and your, your MD suggested a DO for you?
1: It was interesting. He was the one that brought up that they existed. And uh, um, I remember he was, he was a doc uh, that I could relate to um, in that he was, I think he must have either, maybe he was still a resident, um, or he had recently gone through, but uh, he was still talking about what we understand now to be doctor-patient relationship of like the, well, I just went through this class where, you kind of sit at a 45 degree angle to talk to him instead of straight on. So you're not as intimidating stuff. And he was kind of like breaking the fourth wall with me, talking about how to talk to the patient, which was me. <laughs> 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 I thought that was kind of refreshing. And when he was mentioning stuff, he he mentioned that there were these, you know, there were actually two types of doctors out there. and And if I was interested, I should, I should look at them both. And yeah. Yeah. So actually the, the 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 most osteopathic doctor I had ever met up until that point was that guy who was an MD. Okay. Um actually after I learned about DOs and got excited about this concept, um, I had a job and I uh looked in my booklet for what my insurance would allow for a primary doctor and I found a DO. It was out in the middle of nowhere because it was the only DO in the in the North Carolina area, it seemed like at the time. And I went there and I was all excited to have my first appointment. And he was the He was one of the typically non-DODOs out there who, you know, kept one hand on a, on a script pad and the other hand on a pencil and didn't even touch me the whole time. And I thought, I don't remember that being what I was reading about. Yeah. That
0: that would kind of be different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But there's a, there's definitely a lot of DOs that practice that way.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, the thing about, the thing about a school that is different because of its philosophy um, it's really not too difficult to teach a philosophy, but that has nothing to do with whether or not someone wants to adopt that philosophy. And so, you know, and and in the interview process, if anybody has any other motivation to get in and any other transactional thought processes to get through, uh, just to become a doctor and do whatever they want to do as a doctor, they can say whatever they want during the honeymoon period of an interview and get in to whatever school has whatever philosophy it might propose. And that doesn't mean that they're going to follow it at all. And I think uh, there are plenty of people out there who don't.
0: Yeah, I saw that a lot with my a few of my classmates that seemed very passionate. And then once we got in, they weren't very interested in utilizing all the aspects. But I right. think they still were the it's philosophy life. of osteopathic medicine it kind of the approach the patients a little bit different so i still think they incorporate they incorporated that but i was also a young med student and I, I was gung-ho and i i believe that that we should all use omt <laughs> that, that was what made us do's but it's really the philosophy that
1: makes us the the do right and and interestingly when i when I was learning about it, it, the the stuff that I was able to read up on didn't talk a whole lot about the the OMM aspect. It, it talked more about the holistic perspective and uh, uh, sort of a you know it could have been it could have been a website for Dr. Wheel as well, uh, uh, almost as easily as it could have been a website for D.O.s um, yeah. or Dr. Weil. Weil, there we go. Um, but uh, but I remember you know it also mentioned that there was this hands-on thing that they did. And I remember kind of being excited um, to learn about what that was. I still hadn't seen it when I actually became a a, a DO student and and entered the COM. And uh, I had only just read a little bit about it. And none of my family had ever had a DO growing up. I've never experienced any OMM up to that point. But in a past life, many years prior, I had done massage therapy for a little bit, studied that, and, and I thought, well, it's got to be, you know got to overlap with that. And Hey, I've already done that. So I'm probably already a step up and I'm excited. And I went into the first lab and we were all in a big line walking in there. And I think it was Dr. Google over at MSU who I walked up to and said, Hey, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I've, I've already done uh, uh, a couple of years of massage therapy. So I'm really looking forward to kind of getting into this and, and seeing how to compare it and I remember him just kind of staring at me blankly. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> seem very, he was rather nonplussed by that. And I didn't quite understand why because it's like, Oh, I thought these were, it's just hands on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, the philosophy can be independent of, of, of actual OMT. They inter. they, they, they mesh together so wonderfully, but, um, uh, but I, I could understand how somebody could have, uh, uh, fully embrace the philosophy and yet not actually do a lot of hands-on stuff. Um, they're going to probably be referring to other people who can do that part for them. But, uh, but yeah, I can see that working.
0: So how was the massage therapy different from your lab experience?
1: Well, let's see. To me, I would, I would describe OM, OMM or, or OMT in particular. Doing doing an, um, a manual treatment versus doing a massage therapy um, would be similar to if you had if you were kind of down in the dumps, depressed, and you were trying to to raise and lift your spirits. You could either go to the bar with a bunch of your friends and just hash things out, and it's very enjoyable and it lifts your spirits and it makes you happy. Or you could go to a psychologist and sit down on the couch and they would write down notes for you and ask you very pointed questions. To me, that would be massage therapy versus OMT. Um, (laughs) The the massage therapy is very general. It's going to make you feel great. It's going to work out a lot of the same tissues. You're going to feel better afterwards. It's not quite as pointed and OMT compared to massage therapy is probably a little less feel good a little bit maybe more boring for the receiver um but it's probably a little bit more pointed a little more um very um trying to just get to the right area as opposed to just trying to smooth everything out that it can possibly find
0: does it ever ruffle your feathers when people refer to what we do as massage
1: not necessarily because there's so it's so often that um that we live in, in worlds where we just don't have all the information. And so for, for somebody to just to kind of be ignorant of something that that's normal. We, all of us are ignorant of something, uh, of a lot of things. <laughs> we just don't know what, cause we're ignorant. Uh-huh. Of it. Um, so, so when I have, you know, if I go into a patient's room in the hospital and they say, Oh my, my massage person is here. I, I'm not going to worry too much about it. Uh, they they don't know any better or worse it's it's still a whole lot better than some things they could call me so
0: <laughs> right yeah you're, you're correct yeah i figured it's whatever they can best wrap their head around like uh, you know to explain it to them if you try to explain it to you know like muscle energy to them they it may not make any sense but if you say it's it's like massage we're moving the myofascials and focusing on bones tendons and ligaments and right you know, restoring you know where things might be tight trying to use their terms get a better idea of it i think that's that's reasonable
1: yeah it's it's good to have a few sort of elevator speeches to try to help out with that that you can sneak in there and if they have follow-up questions great if they actually want or care to learn more great you can talk to them more but you can try to get in a few keywords and then just get the heck out of the way and let them think what they're gonna think let them have their own reality yeah
0: so, speaking of the elevator speak, <laughs> what do you what do you say when you're in the hospital doing a consult?
1: So, let's see here. For uh, yeah, for 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 OMM in particular, to try to help distinguish what it is I was going into, I would say something like, um, uh, "I'm here for for OMM, which stands for osteopathic manipulative medicine, and it's a it's another specialty that anybody could go into." Um, historically it was something that DOs in particular would do and it's a specialty that looks at the mechanics of a person so we're looking at muscles joints ligaments tendons fascia which is kind of like the saran wrap around everything and we're looking at where things are mechanically maybe too tight or too loose and we're trying to balance that out um, and as a side effect of balancing that out ideally the blood's flowing into an area better so the ingredients that needs to heal can get there the lymph for the garbage pickup service is getting junk out of there faster so inflammatory markers and other sludge that doesn't need to be there can actually go away. Um, And then nerves are less crimped and kinked and they're a little bit happier. And so as a side effect, everything's moving better and therefore everything's happier. And the things that you're coming in complaining about, ideally just get better as a, as, as a result of that. Uh, And that, that being said, you know, what we're doing is mechanical. So we're poking and prodding and playing a little bit of tug of war. And uh, there's a wide range of modalities for that from, you know, Really, really light stuff that seems like we should light candles and chant to really, really heavy handed stuff where it seems like we should wear a luchador mask and jump off the, the, the window seals um, and that we can adjust that based on how they're doing. So if anything is uncomfortable or too tender, uh, just let me know and I can try to dial that in one direction or another to to make sure that we don't overdose you. Very
0: nice. I like that. That's yeah. I like 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 the dose in there, too. That was that was really good. Yeah, because they talk about I hear that every now and then like you can you can treat too much and they feel like they got hit by a truck.
1: Right. Yes. And then
0: to utilize the, you know, it's a kind of a prescription. We're giving you a dose. We're trying to see what the body will do with this dose, just like any other medication or, uh, you
1: know, thing that you would yep. go through. So
0: that's awesome. Thank you for yep. sharing. I appreciate yeah. that.
1: No problem. Yeah. As I'm going on, it, it's always nice to let them know that, you know, there is a little bit of trial and error with it and they have to give me feedback, especially, you know, how did things go not just that day but over the next couple of days as their body processes, and that'll give us more ideas of what we should do next, you know. Um, also, I like to give them the idea that what we're doing is just a moment in time. It's a little drop in the bucket trying to to nudge them, nudge their body towards a certain response. But, you know, most of the time what what this also gives us ideas for is, what should we do, be doing in between visits? Because I want to become useless for them. I, I want them not to need us. Um, and the more we can figure out what they can do for homework, what they can change or do as stretches or whatever, um, to the point where you know, ideally, they only come to see me if they fall down some stairs.
0: Right. Yep. That's what I tell my patients. I, I, I the first visit, I, I you know, I them it's more talking and getting to know them and a little bit of treatment and we'll see how that goes and then the next one we'll see how things you know shook out from the first visit and then we will try some more treatment and then i get things moving or you know get them functioning with the structure that they're working with and then they have to keep that until the next visit so we work together i try to make like that team
1: yep effect. yep yeah. So. Yeah, I, I I really liked, I think it was, they, they talked a little bit about it in that early DPR class when I was going through med school of uh, um, sort of some of the other models of medicine, ideally in the past, although I still see lingering effects of it now, was kind of the, the father-child kind of model, where the doctor is the authority and says, do this because I say to do this, and um uh and i much prefer the idea of of trying to do a partnership with the patient um that that i want them to own a little bit of how they're feeling and how they're doing and whether or not they're getting better or worse uh it, it's it's not on me <laughs> i try to remind them that we are human and that we screw up all the time and and that uh uh doctors and priests and educators and everybody we we are we are screwed up flawed individuals just like everybody else and we are giving our giving you our best guesses and hopefully doing it with our best intentions and and they have to take that for what it's worth and they have to continue to uh uh, sort of advocate for themselves uh during that time not just wait for someone else to do it for them
0: yep yep and sometimes that's hard to figure out where they are in that process yeah when you were in your third and fourth year of of medical school, were you seeking, were you able to see a lot of opportunities with utilizing OMT or Mm. was it kind of minimal or what did you experience?
1: Yeah. uh, uh, I would consider externship to be the dark ages of, of OMT. Um, What I did was, let's see during those years, I remember getting excited because I wanted to try everything because initially I wanted to be that do everything old town doc kind of thing. And I remember, uh, planning out all the electives I wanted and then realizing that I had just filled in the blanks for 24 electives and I only had six slots to put them in. Um, but, uh, OMM wasn't part of that because I had already done an undergrad fellowship in OMM. So I thought, well, I don't need to do more rotations. I have a pretty good amount of that that I could coast on. I just want to make sure I'm getting all the other experiences that I can in the two years of, of externship. And so every month I'd go into whatever rotation I was on, and I would want to make sure I'm doing whatever it is that they were doing. And I would say for two solid years, OMM just wasn't part of it. It uh, uh, seemed like none of the rotations I was on uh, thought even you know, slant-wise about uh, OMM. Um, and I was still never been the most confident person. So I wasn't going out there selling myself saying, right, I can do this for you. So if they weren't, um, themselves already interested in wanting me to, to talk with them about it, I was busy just trying to learn what they knew. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I, my fingers got, I think pretty rusty during years three and four. Um, and then when I finally went into my internship year. Uh, in a combo residency where OMM was part of it. And they, you know, opened the door to my first clinic patient for the OMM side and said, okay, go fix that person. (laughs) I was rather lost. It's like, what, I haven't done this in two years. I I came to the residency to learn this, not to just practice it. I need to know what I'm doing first. So yeah. Yeah. No, I'd say years three and four are are really difficult um, because when when the when the doctors are out there practicing as attendings, they're going to use the tools that they've learned. And uh, during years three and four, um, the doctors before them pass down whatever they're learning to add to their tool bag. And if OMM isn't part of it, then by the time they get through externship and start their internship years, they also don't have it in their bag, and it just perpetuates. Yeah.
0: So you did a fellowship between second and third year?
1: I did. Yeah. What was Uh, that fellowship? um, They had an undergrad OMM fellowship, which I think wasn't supposed to exist anymore. Um, We had heard that it existed. And we, uh, myself and one other student in my class wanted to be a part of it. And we knew it was, you know, there was like, I don't know, I forget, maybe around, you know, February of the... You know, second year or something, we were, we should be applying or something. And we hadn't seen it yet. So we went to the head of the OMM department at the time. I think it was Dr. Golden at the time that I talked to. And he was like, Oh, I was, I was just kind of hoping nobody, nobody knew about it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) they didn't want to do it again. But, but, uh, uh, my fellow student and I, we, we, we kind of cajoled and pushed and prodded and pleaded and we applied and became undergrad fellows for one more year. I don't know if the, I don't know if the fellowship ever continued after that because they kept hoping that people would just stop asking, I think, but, uh, but it went really well. It was pretty cool.
0: So you did that just to expand more of your OMM knowledge or was there more of a benefit that you were thinking of for it? Like for instance, I did it to help beep up my, my on paper, you know, how I look on paper, <laughs> try to make oh. it look better, you know, but did you have a, another reason for, for doing it?
1: I didn't think very far ahead. I, I was a glutton for punishment um, uh, because it just added one more year. It, I don't think there was anything on paper that helped. I don't think it padded my resume in any way special that I know of. I'm not sure. Um, I, I've never been good at sort of uh, making connections and contacts and working on my Rolodex. That was probably the right year to do that kind of stuff, but I didn't, I just don't think that way. So I, I probably squandered uh, uh, that part of the year. Um, I got some really good experiences. I, I, I got to work with uh, uh, Dr. Ward that year, for example, which uh, other than maybe like a lunchtime seminar with the undergrad AEO in years one and two, I, I, I never would have even been able to meet him, let alone do a whole lot of work with him. Uh, and so things like that happened uh, during the undergrad year, which I think was invaluable, but at the end of the year, it wasn't an extra thing on my diploma. It wasn't an extra, it was just now med school was five years instead of four years because of it. Um, uh, it kind of helped, I think in that I kept having, uh, uh, children and having my, my second baby during that year when I was getting a little bit of a, a, a slight break and getting some, uh, um, grad assistant kind of paycheck, uh, to help pay for food, uh, was kind of nice. <laughs> um, uh, so that was cool. Um, I got to have my firstborn be kind of honorary DO cause I would go to lectures during my undergrad year and she would be in the baby Bjorn on my belly while I was lecturing to people. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Um, that was an experience that again, I wouldn't have had any other way. So, so I like that. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's about it. I think it helped solidify that I was very interested in OMM regardless of what else I wanted to do, and that helped kind of really solidify that I could do that. Um, but by having it as one solid year of undergrad fellowship before the externship, um, I, I noticed I heard other schools would would mix that into those other two years, so there would be kind of a little bit of a back and forth. And I do think that that back and forth could be good, um, as opposed to uh, at the end of my undergrad fellowship, I went into my very first rotation in externship years, in year three, and I already had 10 new questions of, hey, now how do I make this fit over here with this discipline? you know? Mm. Um, and But the dialogue was gone because the fellowship was over. Now I'm in this other rotation, whereas if we had mixed that and stirred that into the pot over a period of three years that that would have been nice because I could have had more of a sort of a dialogue between those specialties. Yeah. Um, And that's kind of what helped feed me wanting to do the integrated combo program, FM, OMM, um, which is why I did that over at Metro I think there were only four in the country in the time that I was applying. Uh, there had been six and two disappeared or something in the year that I was trying to get in. So, uh, um, uh, but I really wanted to do an integrated program as opposed to doing a plus one because of the fact that I'd already done that sort of plus one kind of experience with my undergrad and knew that I didn't like that. It was too much of a tossed salad and I was wanting soup. I wanted to mix that together.
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay. Makes yeah. sense. I was going to ask you why you had picked a, an integrated versus a plus one, but you already answered that.
1: Good <laughs> <job>. <laughs> yeah.
0: Jonathan, again, did you always know you were going to do family medicine,
1: though? Well, um, you know, again, initially, when I heard about the philosophy and stuff, I thought, well, this sounds like that old, you know, little house on the prairie, old time, do everything kind of doc, um, the, the wise person in the village kind of thing. And I thought family practice kind of makes sense for that. Um, and And OMM kind of makes sense for that. Uh, having that extra skill because that's what makes that philosophy kind of fit in a out there in front physical manifestation of the deal philosophy. So integrating those two programs made sense to me. Um, uh, being undec- undecided again, terminally undecided. I like the idea that I could go through med school and still not know what I was going to specialize in. Um, but by the end of the, of school and trying out all those other things, it felt like that was going to be the closest thing to being a sort of that general practitioner kind of thing. Um, And that's what I wanted to do at the end of residency was just go out and be that, that generalist kind of do everything doc. Uh, I didn't manage to do that, but that was kind of the idea at the beginning.
0: Okay. Were you ever concerned about the time that you had available for each appointment with the patient and trying to do the family medicine as well as OMM or were they always separated or how did you approach that?
1: Well, at the beginning, I didn't think about any of the pragmatics. I just thought, I'm sure that must all work out. (laughs) I mean, it's a specialty. People do it, right? So I'm sure they must have figured that out by now. I can just plug in. Um, But uh, uh, I I think during residency, we kind of had this thing where we had those two clinics. So there was still a little bit of that tossed salad kind of thing where we had our family medicine clinic and we did our family medicine patient appointments there. And then we had a different half day where we had our OMM clinic and had our OMM patient appointments there. Um, I think it was still easier to figure out how to integrate those. And that in practice, if I was going to do everything, I would probably be seeing a patient who I said, you know, you're probably going to need more time for me to spend more time doing OMT. So I'm going to schedule this appointment and I'm going to make that slot, you know, have so many slots in a half day for, for, you know, specialty omm cases or something uh so i I think it would have worked out okay um but uh but in the end uh, uh i found myself looking at my inboxes and feeling like on the family med side i just felt like i was running into more check sheets and case management kind of stuff um the the wise person in the village who's counseling and doing lifestyle interventions didn't seem to be the priority. It seemed to be more of a did you make this insurance company's balance sheet happy um, as a as a as a doc who made sure that all of their patients got their eye exams uh, this year and got their kidney labs? And there was just a lot of just patient compliance case management stuff. And then there was an inbox that because I didn't have EMRs yet, we had these uh, sort of shoe boxes stuck to a wall. And I would look at the end of the day in my FM inbox, which was right next to my OM inbox. And my FM inbox was burgeoning and billowing out of the top of the box. And my OM inbox was like three little sheets of paper that I could sign off. <laughs> and I, I thought, wow, do, which, and at the end of an FM day, I felt like, okay, um, I'm still thinking about it. I'm trying not to bring all the stress home with me, but I'm wondering which one of these people I just killed by not checking off all of the boxes on their sheet that their insurance required. And and I, I just didn't necessarily feel fulfilled at the end of that half day. Whereas at the end of an OMM half day, I felt good. I knew that which ones uh, probably I helped and which ones were going to be a little bit stickier and needing a little bit more work. And that was okay. And I didn't have to bring it all home with me. And I thought, well, shoot, that one's, you know, feeding my spirit a whole lot better than the other side. Maybe, maybe I've already done my tour of duty in FM by the end of this. So,
0: so I know a lot of students though, always are saying that you just don't have enough time to use OMT. What, what's your, do you have an elevator speech for that?
1: <laughs> um <laughs> Not necessarily, because most of my elevator speeches are for, for patients. I don't oh, usually okay. do them for the for the docs. I, I get more pedantic and, and talk on forever. Um, uh, so I, I would say, you know, uh, a lot of when you get good at OMM, which is after you do many, many, many practices of it, uh, then you can usually start doing that with your hands while you're doing other stuff. So if I had wanted to integrate FM and OMM, more, I would be doing that where I'm getting my hands on and doing things while I'm talking about which hypertension medicine they want. And while I'm talking about, um, how they, you know, maybe should be not drinking a two liter Mountain Dew as their breakfast. Um, and, and I could do both at the same time. Uh, and I think, uh, uh the idea I still miss, um, from the FM side is that When it was an FM, all the patients came in with all of their problems. And it was for me to decide whether OMM was an option or the right thing for this patient. As a specialist, unfortunately, and I think one of the other podcasts you guys had recently addressed this as well, in the specialty world, we have to wait for some other doctor to decide that OMM might be the right thing for this patient. So how often do we get a Crohn's patient to work on OMT for them? Not very often, not as often as we get, certainly for someone can put a finger on a part of their body and say, I hurt here. Um, How often do we get um, management for COPD or asthma or uh, uh, chronic constipation other than a little baby? Um, uh, We tend not to get those things because the FM world will get those. And if they do OMM, they could decide whether or not they want to add that, but most people aren't going to think to send those people to a OMM specialist.
0: No, they they definitely don't. I was trying to do some research to support that we can do stuff outside of pain, uh, but there's limited time and, <laughs> and
1: everything. Yeah, yeah.
0: Unfortunately, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like doing those other things. So yeah. when I get a consult, I always check to see if there's maybe something else that we could help with. Yeah. later on because you, know, you always address what they're referred for so
1: there was a there was a talk uh many years ago there was a, a doc that talked to us about how you know the, the whole point an, an, another way to think about this idea of when you're doing your evaluation palpation uh you are trying to find the health and part of that concept if you follow through that line of argument is that an OMM evaluation and, uh, is, is something that should be part of a complete physical. <laughs> you should be doing a scan and trying to, you know, in, in all cases with OMM, you're not trying to necessarily make someone symmetrical. You're trying to make them more towards that. You're trying to help mitigate problems and, and optimize where they are in that time and in that space and uh, doing OMT as a response to what you find as part of a complete physical, not as a response to what you find as a pain (laughs) complaint or as any other complaint um, would be the way of not chasing a disease or a pain, but chasing health. You're just trying to improve on someone's health by finding what's going to help set that off just a little bit more towards where they would be optimized. Um, And we don't do that. We don't, you know, we, I I don't get a chance to do a complete physical on somebody. I have to wait until they come in with a complaint. Uh, The whole medical system tends to wait until they come in with a complaint. FM and IM are the only ones who get a chance to get an opening in which they can do that as a everything's fine and I'm going to check you anyways and see if I can optimize you. Um, And that's a beautiful, powerful place to be, provided you are also comfortable using OMT when you're there.
0: Do you do that often then? Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Bless you. Did you... <coughs> Hold on.
1: I, I, I'm i afraid I stole your cough drop. <laughs> I took a cough drop right beforehand because I never trust that my throat is going to not have a tickle like that.
0: Very smart. Very yeah. smart. I will have to do that from now on. <laughs> I tried sucking down a whole bunch of water and coughing far away from the mic and it just wasn't working.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, <I hear> <laughs>
0: so. So when you were doing family medicine and OMM, did you do that? Did you do a screen and see? And then if you found something, have them book an OMM appointment?
1: Um, again, during my, my short time in residency with FM, I, I might try to do some stuff like that. But I wouldn't necessarily book them an appointment for the OMM side so much as that would be the moment when I could do a little something extra to their CT junction oh. you know uh etc that would be again for the people who are doing who are embracing OMM as as one of the tools in their toolbox OMT I should say when they're doing one of the tools in the toolbox as a a, a primary care kind of doc that would be one of the the beautiful additional things you could do a, a wonderful mindset you could have of of they're doing fine what can I do to make sure they stay doing fine you know Um, they don't have symptoms yet. It's sort of like, uh, uh, if we had, uh, the postural kind of thought process of, yeah, they, they don't have any back pain right now, but they're holding themselves with their head five feet in front of their chest and that's their posture. And you know, that if you leave them like that for 20 years, they're going to have pains either in their neck or their back. Can you do something about that now rather than waiting for them to show up with symptoms? Um, and, and the primary care docs can.
0: So you just made a light bulb go off for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have some patients that come in just, just as a checkup. And I was totally confused at first, like, okay, every, nothing hurts. You feel fine. I don't, you know, what's broke. Don't fix it kind of thing, you know, or, right, you know, you. and, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'll check things out. And a lot of times these people have some kind of scoliosis and we just make sure that things are moving still and nothing's really stuck. But now right. that, that actually makes those appointments even more. They,
1: they are, they are a wonderful opportunity to practice any and all of your, uh, palpatory screening exams yeah. and see where that takes you and make that better. Whatever it is, whatever rabbit hole that takes you down. Yeah.
0: Awesome. That that was a that's a that's a great little what um, Dr. Hayes would call a pearl. Great pearl.
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: I'm sure a lot of people call those pearls, but
1: yeah, but I just remember him more, talking
0: about pearls. So.
1: He he would make it somehow sound more Austrian when he says it, though. Right?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, uh, the, all the right. The pearl is in the fascia. <laughs> yes, in the fascia. Yep. Uh, do you have any encounters of, uh, utilizing OMM with a patient that you just love to tell people the, the awesomeness of OMT or,
1: oh gosh. Um, not necessarily. I, I, I haven't thought of a particular, I guess. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple things. Um, um, uh, as a theme this is not new I think everybody's probably many people will encounter this um, there was somebody who came in to my FP thing and amongst other things uh, it was a hypertension check maybe or something like that but they also had just sprained their ankle like you know that morning they had twisted their ankle and it was all kind of it wasn't it wasn't the worst one in the world but it was a little bit swollen it was very tender and so while I was doing the other stuff with them I did a uh, counter strain to their ankle and, you know, very light, very indirect stuff, but it was kind of an immediate, this is an acute thing. And I, I did that and I saw them for some reason, I saw them like only the following week. I forget why we had to see them so fast. Um, but they came in and they were talking about the other thing that we were having them come in for. And I said, well, how's your ankle? Uh, and I was looking at it and it looked really good. And they said, Oh yeah, I guess it wasn't as bad a sprain as I thought. And they just, it was so frustrating. It's like, I, I think we had something to do with that. Why? Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, sometimes OMT is not uh, a big, outlandish, wonderful, surgical change that is very easy to see. It's, it's just subtle shifts in what their body is already doing which makes it really hard to measure. It makes it really hard to do outcome studies in it because mm, there you go. This person just decided, well, they didn't sprain their ankle that bad that day after all, because it never really got that bad to begin with. Of course, without being able to predict the future and go back in the time machine and take away the OMT that happened the very afternoon after they got that sprain, we don't know how bad it would have gotten, you know, but, but that happens, that happens to a lot of people. You have to be able to uh, kind of, uh, uh, keep true to uh, paying attention to what you notice before and after, and uh, uh, meld that with a, a little grain of salt when when you have patients not really notice that you did anything for it.
0: Yeah. Yep. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, for the final question, it's the <laughs> one that we ask everyone: What would you tell a med student that isn't quite so understanding of why they're going to lab? They're more focused on doing the cardiology, their neurology, which is, you know, it takes a lot to do those and they can just kind of shuffle through OMM. What would you tell them to kind of help them either brighten that lab experience or see the importance of OMT? What would you say?
1: Um, Part of the thought process that that you just mentioned there kind of reminds me of how You know, you you go into the one class and you're thinking of the other one that you just left or thinking about the next one that you're gonna go into. Um, And that, at least in your mind, is along the lines of sort of trying to multitask. And there have been many studies on multitasking and I'm I'm pretty sure at this point, although there are so people who'd argue against it, but I would say multitasking is a myth. Um, And you want to not try, doing three classes while you're inside one of them. You want to focus on the one class you're in when you're, when you're taking notes for cardiology, you should be a hundred percent in your cardiology classroom. When you're in OMM, you should be a hundred percent mindful. they present in your OMM classroom. Uh, you're not going to get nearly as much out of either one of the classes. If you're busy spending your time with half your brain in the other class at the time that you do it. Um, uh, you gotta, you got to be able to give up the stress that you felt from the prior hour and say, I'm in somewhere else right now. I can pick that stress up again after this hour is over. And you're going to get so much more out of lab if you can let go and just be there for it. Um, the other thing is uh, I think uh, uh, Dr. Pintal was my first lab instructor uh, in class. And I remember being so frustrated because uh, we had – Uh, You know, our group of five or whatever, uh, we had a person on their belly and we were checking out depth of a sacral base or something uh, early on. And I was in line behind other four people going through, pushing on these these sacral bases. And and the person would say, posterior right, posterior right, posterior right. And I swear to God, it was posterior left, no matter what anybody else said. And uh, and it was so frustrating because this should be a really simple, you know, (laughs) binary kind of it's either deep or it's shallow uh and i remember pintal saying it's okay you're doing it your own way and as long as you're paying attention to what you're feeling and you're gonna be making changes it's gonna be okay and i i feel bad i think if he had been one of my later teachers i would have been able to get so much more out of the philosophy that he was trying to give me but at the time it was like no it's supposed to be off instead of on you know we are we are learning medicine where everything is supposed to have a nice Yes or no. The litmus paper turned pink or blue. That's it. And, uh, and, and in the OMM world, I, I, years and years, uh, you know, a decade later, I'm in a, a lab with my residents, and I'm watching them line up to work on this person's sacral base, and I watched how the first resident came and put their hands vertically over the, 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 the uh, uh, sacrum, and they pushed straight down toward the table, and the next one came in. And their hands were like at a just 10 degrees off of vertical. And they pushed slightly superiorly as they went in. And the other one pushed down, but they pushed like uh half a centimeter more posteriorly, or I mean sorry, more inferiorly than the other group had, or or a little bit laterally. And I thought to myself, wow, everybody is like they're pushing with a different depth, which is hard to tell. Which layer are they actually pushing into before they decide they're at the end of their their range, um, uh, what, what counts to them as a bony layer versus, you know, not quite yet. Um, they're pushing at a different vector. They're pushing at a slightly different spot in the anatomy. Some of them are going to be paying attention to uh, the, the little multifidi being tight. Other ones are going to be trying to sink down to feeling like they're right on the ligament or periosteum and they're all going to come up with their own answers. Um, so uh, you have to, you have to kind of get with the idea that they're going to be contradictions. They're going to be some oxymoronic things and they're both probably true for resident a, the left base was posterior for resident B. The right base was posterior because you're probably checking slightly, subtly different spots. And the bigger test is that if you can treat that and make it go away, ideally then the other person checks their perspective it'll be better from their perspective too, because things move better, things move better, period. Um, so there's still ways that we can work with each other on that, even if we have to write down a different thing for our landmarks. All of these things that you're learning in OMM are models. They are constructs that we have devised, which we have simplified from reality. The reality is so much more complex than we can possibly do. We've made these models so that we can at least try to simplify it enough that we can talk to each other about them. But we have to remember that they aren't an easy on, off, yes, no, ones and zeros kind of thing. That was just the way we did it so that we could try to talk about it. And uh, um, I think uh, taking those, trying to follow those as accurately as you can, as precisely as you can, but realizing that at the same time that you're trying to do that, it is impossible to, achieve that 100%. You're going to have some chaotic factor that is you that's going to change those results and you just have to make sure you are true to your before and your after and you're paying attention to that while you're doing it and you should be good. Well put. And it's so
0: funny that you bring up the black and white thing. I I got into medicine because I wanted a a one plus two equals three.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yep.
0: (laughs) And that is not medicine.
1: <laughs> well, it is some. It is
0: some parts. Sometimes, of medicine. but not... some medicine
1: loves to do linear thinking. But but osteopathy is very not linear. <laughs>
0: no, it is not. No. <laughs> it's funny that
1: that's where I've gravitated towards. Um, yeah.
0: So anyway, but yes, I think that was very well put. Thank you so much for answering that question
1: for us. Yeah, no problem thank you
0: so i appreciate we have got to the hour marker and is there anything else that you would like to include or say before we say goodbye
1: um gosh not necessarily i have i have other elevator speeches that we can always go over sometime but but uh but but everybody already has some of those so uh uh
0: well we could do a podcast on just elevator speeches (laughs) I'm sure that, that might be a good theme, and all of you us know? would really appreciate it. Under you know, how, how does somebody else word you know this towards their patient, or you know, yeah, you know, I think that would honestly, yeah, be very-
1: the, you know, elevator speeches for some of the common questions patients have. What's yeah. uh, why what what's the difference between you and a chiropractor? What's the difference between an MD and a DO? What's the you know what the heck is this OMT thing you're talking about? All, all those things. There there's a million subtle ways to do that in a way that we could maybe talk to them quickly and not watch their eyes glass over.
0: Yes, uh, exactly.
1: Be, yeah, it would be wonderful to have a, have a little session on that. That sounds good.
0: Yeah, I like that. That's a good plan. Well, thank you for today, and I will chat with you later.
1: Sounds good. Thank you. It was wonderful speaking with you.
0: You too. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and were able to glean some pearls as I did. If you have any questions or comments for Dr. Grunwald or myself, please click on the episode and feel free to leave us a review. See you in the next one.